Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, a podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 114, May 22nd to May 28th, 1863. Last week, we had the Battle of Champion Hill. And then, further disaster for the Confederacy at the Big Black River. While a tall task, it had been possible to obtain a tactical victory against Grant, and then, further, it was considered poor decision-making, even by the enlisted men, to not withdraw behind the Big Black River. If you recall that Pemberton needs to try to wait for William Wing Loring. Loring has other ideas. He decides he's not going to make it back to the army, and subsequently then Vicksburg as well. This week, we are going to the very gates of the last Gibraltar of the West and see if Grant can put a nice bow on his campaign. We will also check in a little further south at Port Hudson to see what is going on there. But let's check in on the strategic situation for Grant and Pemberton. Before we do that, of course, want to plug our Patreon content. We did have a picture slideshow that goes nicely with Chancellorsville here at the beginning of the month, and then hopefully we'll be posting a memoir review. That one's going to be Maxley Sorrell, who does get a little bit of play for some of these events that are about to unfold here, especially Gettysburg, uh, having served as a staff officer. So that is going to be the first sort of type of memoir that we've had like that. And if that sounds like something that would interest you, of course, there's a link to the Patreon in the show description, and those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. I think you can safely assume that morale was low for the Confederacy. As the streams of demoralized men march back into Vicksburg, many civilians will write about how just downtrodden they seemed. It was not too long ago that Grant was on the other side of the river, all previous attempts at the city having failed. But now, the Army of Tennessee was knocking on the back door of the city. In a string of engagements, they had come out on top, outgeneraling the rebels. But, despite the defeats, there are certainly some things going for the South. For one thing, there are improved earthworks that have been constructed by Samuel Lockett. Lockett had constructed a pretty formidable defensive perimeter around the city using an available ridgeline. I hope to include a map that will go over the defensive works so we have a pretty good idea of what we're talking about here, but we should know that to the north was Fort Hill, near the Walnut Hills, and named as such for the old Spanish fort that had once stood there. Protecting the Graveyard Road from the northeast was the 27th Louisiana Lunette, the Stockade Redan, and Greens Redan. Snaking down to the more easternly approach on the Jackson Road was the 3rd Louisiana Redan and Stockade Redoubt. Southeast would be the Baldwin Ferry Road and the Southern Railroad, protected by the 2nd Texas Lunette, the Railroad Redoubt, and the square fort. 
the south fort would anchor the line and of course to the south with several batteries along the river as well. Loring may have been gone, but there are still unused divisions yet of Forney and Martin Smith who garrisoned Vicksburg. They will be recalled from their outer positions in order to defend the city along with the rest of the army. Pemberton would have Martin Smith and his troops to the north, with Forney and his fresh division to the east, along with Stephen Dill Lee's brigade. Stevenson would be arrayed to the south, with Bowen and his veterans in reserve. On the Union side, everything was clicking. Grant is going to call in the rest of Sherman's corps, the divisions of Tuttle and Steele, turning their attention on Vicksburg, as would the rest of the army. As Grant approaches Vicksburg, he is going to get contacted by Nathaniel Banks. Banks, if you recall, is moving through Louisiana and heading to Port Hudson. There had been some question as to who was supporting who in their campaigns. The issue is that Banks actually outranks Grant, but Grant is not going to let Vicksburg slip away when he is so very close. Even with all of Grant's victories, he is still having a specter cast over his actions. You remember, he has Halleck over him after Donaldson, and then again at Shiloh, benched at Corinth, and almost replaced by Thomas. The question probably was to Grant, could this happen again? Campaign plans were doubted, even by his subordinate officers. There really was only one person who believed in the overall strategy, and that was Grant himself. Well, this, I think, is going to add into his decision-making. If he can finish it off now, then it cannot be taken away. Not again while he is so close. Banks had the opportunity to continue in a campaign further into Louisiana, but he does not opt for that. He decides he's going to take out Port Hudson. So he's kind of going off in his own direction and... Grant, likewise, is going to be in his own sort of realm there in Vicksburg. He's actually going to get more reinforcements that actually Banks probably could have used. And we'll talk about Port Hudson here shortly. May 18th would almost give Grant the opportunity to finish Pemberton off straight away. A miscommunication between Pemberton and Smith would allow for part of the line to be unmanned. With Sherman snaking to the north on the Graveyard Road approach and McPherson advancing as well, and may have been exploited if acted upon quickly. The gap was fixed, though, and Grant would be content to allow for his whole army to approach. In the meantime, Porter and the Navy would seal off the Yazoo River. In so doing, the Confederate chance to escape and join Johnston would likewise be missed. Now Grant would wish to assault immediately for a variety of reasons. One we already mentioned was that Banks or someone else could call off his attack. Johnston was still in his rear somewhere with a not insignificant force. If there was to be a coordinated assault, it could pose a problem. Grant, for some reason after the war, is going to credit Johnston as being one of the better officers he faces which is weird given the Rebels' performance in the spring and summer of 1863. But if that really truly was the case, and Grant considers Joseph Johnson to be a high-quality general, then that could also lead to his 
decision making. He's going to be wary of such a man operating in the rear of his army, potentially. A third reason will be that the momentum had shifted significantly after Champion Hill. Morale, as mentioned, was low for the Confederates, and the Federal commander believed that the resolve to fight was likewise gone. If the attacks happen quickly, it may be met with success, given the state of Pemberton's forces. Attacks would begin after a bombardment of the Confederate line. Sherman had set up shop in the vicinity of the Graveyard Road. Frederick Steele would be on the northern approach across from Fort Hill. Francis Blair would be moving relatively straight down the Graveyard Road, attacking the Stockade Redan and the 27th Louisiana Lunette. Pemberton had shifted some of Cockrell's brigades to support Shoup, whose Louisiana regiments were expecting a federal attack. Giles Smith and Thomas Kilby Smith would oblige in the afternoon, moving over rough terrain. The going would be slow, and the Union regiments forced to collect themselves before proceeding. Thomas Kilby Smith's 54th Ohio, 55th Illinois, 83rd Indiana, 57th Ohio, and 127th Illinois would advance at one point relatively unsupported, their attack coming to naught. A young drummer in the 55th Illinois would go back for more ammunition, gaining fame by running into Sherman, who noticed him to have been wounded in the leg. Sherman would send him to the rear, but not before the drummer called out 54 caliber back to the general, making sure that he knew that's what they needed at the front. Jowell Smith had in his ranks the 1st Battalion 13th Regulars, which has as an officer Sherman's adopted brother. Sherman himself had actually been the battalion commander, their current captain, a grandnephew who will be mortally wounded in the assault. It would be Charles Ewing, who reportedly would be the first to plant the U.S. colors on the base of the Rebel Works. For this, the 13th would be awarded the honor of first at Vicksburg, something they would wear as a patch on their sleeves. It did not come easily, though, losing 71 out of 250, including almost the entire color guard. The success was short-lived, as this brigade, and then a supporting attempt by Hugh Ewing's brigade, would be parried away easily. Thomas Kilby Smith would write that the attack on the 19th would be the greatest slaughter he witnessed, comparing it to Balakava and the Crimea. There were some reports that Blair was intoxicated during the action, although he is the only division commander to have attacked. Steele did not even jump off on this portion of the line, and Tuttle remained idle. Elsewhere amongst the Federal forces, McPherson and McClernand had half-hearted attempts at the Confederates, although the majority of their corps were actually still on the way. There was a moment of confusion, an assault being told to kick off with artillery fire, but as you can imagine, there was a lot of that going on, making it confusing as to when the jump-off point would be. Thomas Ransom's brigade from MacArthur's division would see the most action, the 95th Illinois advancing fairly close to the earthworks, but there was no support. Blackjack Logan seemed to think that there would be a grand assault and told his men to follow him as he hit the Confederates head-on, but his troops remained idle. Likewise, Osterhaus's division would meander toward the enemy. All in all, there was very little to show on the 19th, the Federals suffering some 942 casualties. But all was not in vain. 
these attacks would be valuable probes of the enemy positions. It was better for Grant to get all of his ducks in a row, even with his sense of urgency. His men were in need of supplies. Fortunately, though, he had made a contact with Porter and the Navy. Previously, the Army had lived off the land, with any hope of supply heading down from Milliken's Bend to hard times. Rebel guns on the eastern side of the river had dissuaded any movements from there. Now the Yazoo was an option not only for a shorter route, but it would allow for easier reinforcement and the moving of prisoners. 4,000 or so had been accumulated from the various battles, including stragglers from Loring's March. Eventually, these men would make their way north, Stephen Hurlbut commanding upriver at Memphis. Porter would steam up the waterway and destroy Confederate stores, as well as three crucial rams being built to combat his Brownwater Navy. With the Yazoo secure, Grant, who heard cries of crackers, crackers, when he observed the enemy works, would be able to provide for his army. May 22nd would be the next assault, time still seemingly not on his side. Inside the works, seeing the initial probes deflected would boost morale. So if there was going to be any capitalization on their waning spirits, it would have to be now. It was planned for a general massed movement, the corps commanders sinking their watches to begin, possibly the first time this was done in military history. Sherman would use Frank Blair's men again along the Graveyard Road, with Steele's division demonstrating. McPherson, too, would attack in his sector, with McClernand using Osterhaus again to lead, supported by a brigade from Alvin Hovey's division. Hovey had been left behind at Champion Hill to clean up. Potentially, this was going to be the largest combined assault the Army of Tennessee had yet attempted. For Blair, the assault would begin with Ewing's division directly on the Graveyard Road. Before the main body, however, would advance a forlorn hope. These men had the job of throwing down ladders and logs onto the Confederate works, so there was a bridge for their comrades coming in behind. If you think that sounds like a not-so-cool job, you would be right, hence the name Forlorn Hope, which, in 1860s terms, also meant most likely all going to die. Troops were pulled from all the regiments in Blair's division, some volunteering, others being coerced. When the assault came, many of these men would fall via a volley from the Confederates. Some would gain the trench and throw in their logs and ladders, but just with the amount of casualties, and even men making it to the trench, throwing down their logs and ladders, it really was not going to be a whole lot. No bridgehead, therefore, was established. This was bad news for the 30th Ohio, coming in behind, also taking on casualties. Some of the Buckeyes would make it to the works, and join their comrades taking cover. The 37th Ohio would falter. Blair blaming them for a poor performance, but passage on the road was obstructed by bodies. The remaining regiments, the 4th West Virginia and the 47th Ohio, had pulled out to take their chances on the broken terrain. Jal Smith and the brigade would be on their flank, linking up with McPherson's Corps and Ransom's brigade to the south for a joint assault. Ransom would wait with Smith, however, until the afternoon to begin their attack. When they did, both brigades would be met with stiff defense, the Confederates ready for their movement. 
Several color bearers and Ransom's brigade would go down as a result. Kilby Smith's brigade would do little in support of these movements, because they were also met with a determined resistance. Joseph Maurer's brigade of Tuttle's division would try the Graveyard Road, but this attack would also see a lack of success. Led by the 11th Missouri, some 24 men would make it to the ditch and join their comrades from the morning's forlorn hope, but the 47th Illinois, 8th Wisconsin, and 5th Minnesota would be driven back with very accurate fire. Steele's division, which included a brigade under John Thayer and Charles Woods, would be late in their jump-off and assault the 26th Louisiana Redoubt, but be bloodily repulsed. One company commander would report he had tears in his eyes watching his men fall. This attack was supposed to begin with the other morning assaults, but did not due to troubles in the terrain. Sherman had failed to coordinate his troops, instead seeing piecemeal moves that would not trouble the Southerners too much. It is interesting a lot of times when you read about these attacks on this particular day, there could have been a lot more coordination, and Grant does take a, a few days to get his ducks in a row, as mentioned, and try to make sure that this attack is going to be successful, but there could have been a greater effort and probably a little bit more time, but as we've mentioned, Grant is sort of on a time crunch. Further south, Logan would attack along the Jackson Road. John Smith's brigade would move straight toward the 3rd Louisiana Redan. While this action was unfolding, much in the same way as Blair's assault would be conducted on the Graveyard Road, John Stevenson's brigade would move on the Great Redoubt. Facing Logan would be Louis Hebert's brigade, made mostly of veteran troops. The 3rd Louisiana we first met all the way back at Wilson's Creek, so they have been around for a while. Smith's assault would go just as well as Ewing's had to the north, with only some of his regiments actually gaining the ditch before the enemy position. Mortimer Leggett's brigade and support was not thrown in. Stevenson's assault would be carried out mostly by just the 7th Missouri and 81st Illinois, both of these regiments suffering heavy casualties as a result. The 7th would plant their green flag on the parapet, and in a moment that's very similar to what we talked about with Fredericksburg, would be facing several Irish companies of the 21st Louisiana. Isaac Quimby's division, a.k.a. Crocker's, if you recall from Champion Hill, will start to form up on the left of Logan, but initially would be skeptical of an assault, obstacles in their way potentially making for a tough go. While Quimby would be shifted to help McClernand, as we will get to shortly, Logan is never going to deploy Leggett's brigade, which may have been an oversight on the part of the division commander. Or also McPherson's general lack of enthusiasm, which had become contagious amongst his subordinates. McPherson is criticized for not being as gung-ho about the attacks, which is fair, but again, greater coordination would probably have led to greater confidence in the attack. For McLaren's sector, Oster House would attack to the south, closer to Square Fort. He would be supported by one of Hobie's regiments. Further to the north, A.J. Smith and Carr would attack the 2nd Texas Lunette and the Railroad Redoubt. Osterhaus's attack would sputter out in the face of Stephen Dill Lee's Alabama regiments, 
Crucially, he did not throw in his reserves for the initial attack. A.J. Smith and Carr would attack in their sector one at a time. The 99th Illinois of Benton's Brigade, Carr's division, would lead the assault along the Baldwin Ferry Road. This regiment and the brigade as a whole would suffer heavy casualties in their attack. Thomas Higgins, a color bearer of the 99th, would actually advance alone, somehow avoiding rebel fire. Instead of dropping the lone Yankee, he was allowed to enter their works and be taken prisoner, an action that would net him a Medal of Honor. Burbage would likewise attack with his brigade and see initial success, but Carr had insisted on a shifting of these regiments, which would cost time and lives. The Chicago Mercantile Battery would deploy to engage the enemy, the battery captain Patrick White and members of his gun crew being awarded the Medal of Honor for their efforts on this part of the field. Elsewhere on the line, two Federal Brigades would assault the Railroad Redoubt. This earthwork had been damaged by the Federal bombardment preceding the attacks and was defended by only a few companies of various regiments, including the 30th Alabama, Wall's Texas Legion, and Louisiana Zouaves. Michael Lawler of Carr's division and William Landrum of Smith's would attack and almost break the rebel defense, partly due because they were attacking in column. The lieutenant commanding the redoubt would describe them as if coming up from the earth. The 21st, 22nd, 23rd Iowa, and the 11th Wisconsin, fresh off their assault at the Big Black River, would lead the way. A small contingent of the 22nd Iowa would gain a foothold in the work itself, but McCormland's mixed attacks had jumbled all the units up, and there were no reserves available. Joseph Griffin, a 19-year-old sergeant, would capture 13 Confederates on his way out. I do want to mention that McCormland's belief of potential success, or the opportunity of success in an attack, would lead to the continued assaults we are talking about in these various sectors in the afternoon. Grant would continue at first being skeptical of the reports from the 13th Corps. Continued assaults might help break the enemy, though, so these attacks would go on. Crucially, Grant does not confer in person with McClernand on this part of the line. In-person conferences with Sherman and McPherson would happen, but not with his least cooperating subordinate. When Grant speaks with McPherson, he mentions that Quinby can be used to support the 17th Corps but if McPherson wished, he could send those men to support McClernand, which he did. Instead of concentrating this force, these brigades would go in a la carte. Sanborn would attack north of the 2nd Texas Lunette with only two brigades. Holmes would attack closer to the square fort, but make no headway. George Boomer was given the tough task of attacking over relatively open ground in between the railroader doubt and the 2nd Texas Lunette, a prospect that he was not thrilled by. He would obey orders, though, and be killed with a shot to the head. Reportedly, his last words were for his men not to assault the works. With the popular boomer gone, the attack fizzled out. Wall's Texas Legion would secure the railroad redoubt, capturing several Yankees and two flags in the process. John MacArthur's division would cross the Mississippi with the assistance of Porter's Navy. These men were potential additional reinforcements to McClernand, but they would do little. The attack spent, and them still having a long way to go. This is also 
a good time to just talk about how obviously the relationship between McLernan and Grant has fizzled out to the point where he's not even going to have an in-person conference with him. And you can also kind of flip that around the other way and say, well, if McPherson had been talking directly to Grant and granted he is the least experienced of these core commanders, why didn't he do a better job in his sector of the field? So these are all interesting questions. And usually when there's any kind of backlash about how Grant really wasn't all that great of a battlefield commander or even Sherman, uh, they point at things like this. And, and we'll talk about Chattanooga and we'll, when we get there here in November. But there's another moment where there's a lot of finger pointing and saying like, oh, well, these guys weren't actually as good as maybe some sources say they are. Grant realized that he would have to turn to siege, an alternative from the direct assaults repulsed on the 19th and the 22nd. Northern forces suffered 3,199 casualties, as opposed to around 500 from the Confederates. Unfortunately, Grant would not initiate a truce to collect the dead bodies, which began to rot in the Mississippi sun. Doing so, in his mind, would concede defeat. Pemberton would call for a truce, Burial is beginning on the 25th. During this time, men would mingle. Sherman in particular keeping Samuel Lockett busy instead of having the engineer observe any federal works. Pemberton and his army had won a big victory, especially given how the campaign was unfolding. Despite tinkering with his troops, Pemberton had placed them in key spots that could maximize their effectiveness. Grant did not mass his troops for an assault, but neither did any of his corps commanders. It has been pointed out in many of my sources that he probably has less troops than it would appear on paper, kind of like when we talked about McClellan at Antietam. Reinforcements would be on the way, something Pemberton would hope for but never see. We have all these times, too, speaking of that, where it just seems like even with the way the campaign is unfolding to this point, even with all the setbacks and the failures that the Confederate armies have chalked up after this successful repulse of the assault. If that had been combined with something, some kind of action from Johnson, you still get the feeling that maybe before these reinforcements arrive for the Union Army, maybe something could have been done. And while that's that's sort of a tall task, it's not particularly likely, you get in this campaign and there's all these moments where it's like, well, this could have been at least different or maybe even having a chance of success. Previous to the assaults on the defenses, Grant had thought there was a possibility Nathaniel Banks was coming to join him with reinforcements, enough men to carry the day. Banks, though, did not, busy with his own operations. Banks would actually think he was going to get support from Grant, which is why he is campaigning further south. We will go ahead and take a look at Port Hudson and what is happening there. Banks had decided that Port Hudson was going to be his next target. Remember, he had chased Taylor's Department of Louisiana away in April, so he was clear to focus on the Southern Thorn and the side of the federal efforts to capture the Mississippi. Banks would divide his 30,000-man force into two columns, one advancing from the north and the other converging on Port Hudson from the south. Commanding the rebel garrison was Major General Frank Gardner, 
Gardner was a native of New York and a career soldier. He did a good job of bolstering the rebel defenses, although there were some flaws. Back in March, Farragut had tested Port Hudson, and while two ships were able to slip past, there were some 78 killed and 32 wounded amongst the other vessels, showing how dangerous firing from the bluffs could be. If you look at a map, the defenses are a little more wonky than Vicksburg. It included the possibility of civilians being exposed to fire, which was a big criticism. On the northern end, there was a jut in the line called Fort Desperate, which was to protect a grain mill. On May 21st, the Confederates would perform a successful delaying action at Plain Store. Union cavalry would make contact with the 14th Arkansas and a Mississippi battery at the Plains Masonic Lodge. The cavalry was actually commanded by our friend Bjorn Grierson, leading Christopher Auger's division as it marched to link up with Banks. Auger's division would be brought up to skirmish with the rebels, who stubbornly held on. Reinforcements would arrive in the form of 400 Louisiana troops under Colonel W.R. Miles. Late in the day, Miles would attack the Union regiments as they attempted to make camp, routing the 48th Massachusetts. The 49th Massachusetts and 116th New York would drive off the smaller force. Both sides would suffer around 100 casualties. Union regiments would see a large number of missing, as these were rookie regiments. Whether they were captured or through desertion, that would significantly reduce their troop strength and obviously make for a higher casualty count. Banks would land, though, and be able to move on Port Hudson. May 27th would see Banks, much like Grant, trying to end the campaign with an assault. He had gathered his divisions together, which included men under Thomas Sherman, Christopher Auger, and Cuvier Grover. This comprised officially the Union 19th Corps, or the Army of the Gulf. Garner has maybe 7,500 compared to the 30,000 these divisions could bring to the field, so there was definitely an advantage in numbers. Getting to the Confederate works was not an easy task. Terrain was rough and the works were just beyond the Little Sandy Creek. Besides this, the rebels benefited greatly from the extra time Banks had given them gathering his forces, especially in the more northern sector where Thomas Sherman was attacking. Goffrey Whitesell of Auger's division and Grover would jump off their attacks to the north in the vicinity of Fort Desperate and the Bullpen. These would be repulsed, but only from the Confederates shifting men from the relative center of their line. Fort Desperate was manned by the 15th Arkansas and would be outnumbered during the assaults on the 27th and then in June. The earthworks were able to be reinforced, though. Four regiments would attack the rebels, but were repulsed the 159th New York getting ground before the small garrison had to shift and drive off the 12th Maine with some hand-to-hand -hand fighting. The 1st and 2nd Native Guards would also participate in an assault, although they were closer to the river and suffered heavy casualties being unsupported. These regiments were made up of freedmen and former slaves, mostly having been used as pioneer regiments building bridges. It would be their brave action, along with the fighting at Milliken's Bend, that would start to change the perception of how well black troops would fight in the war, this being the first time officially they were thrown into action. 
Part of the reason the northern sector assault would fail is that Thomas Sherman would not jump off his attack at the same time. While he had brought forward a large amount of artillery and began to pound the enemy, he was actually disobeying orders. Banks would threaten to remove him from command if he did not attack, so he would lead his troops, being wounded as a result. Also wounded would be the Quaker and temperance advocate General Neil Dow. With the stronger earthworks here and two 24-pounders used for canister by the rebels, the attack would likewise fail. Over 1,800 casualties would be lost on the Union side, compared to 235 on the part of the Confederates. So again, much like Grant, Banks is going to resort to a siege. The 48 days would be the longest siege on U.S. soil up to that date. While I will talk more about Vicksburg next week, I do want to go into more detail on Port Hudson to close out this episode, and in so doing, look ahead. The Confederates would seemingly be at a material disadvantage for the majority of the action. They would have to reuse weapons and cut off shirt sleeves for cases to hold canister. In fact, they would run short on all supplies including food before the end. Accounts recorded that mules were being eaten before the conclusion of the siege. Many men succumbed to disease and starvation. But there was a serious morale boost for the repelling the assault. Banks would see deserters making it to his ranks and informing him of conditions, prompting him to believe the garrison would fall if pressured with another attack. They would do so again on June 14th. Cuvier Grover's division would lead the attack, a night assault on Fort Desperate, but the rebels had had time to reinforce their positions, and the terrain in that region was still formidable. Halbert Payne's division would suffer heavy casualties, while Augur's regiments demonstrated. These assaults would be preceded by a bombardment that saw an artillery shot every second from the Union guns, but they were unable to soften the defenders. This would produce another 1,700 or so casualties, compared to less than 50 on the rebel side. Garner had refused a demand for surrender, showing the resolve of the defenders. If Vicksburg could be broken, then Port Hudson could likewise be broken, which was the hope. Both sides would settle back down into a siege. Banks would wish to create a special assault regiment, but they were never used as such. Sniping and mining would be the order of the day until July. I do want to mention that as well, and we'll talk about that at the conclusion of the Vicksburg siege, but sniping is going to be on the side of the Federal in terms of the advantage. Uh, the Confederates are not going to be as as good at it, and they're going to suffer heavy casualties as a result. Some raids would be conducted on the Confederate side by forces trapped within and cavalry abroad. One such action actually captures the wounded General Dow. Federal artillery was able to swing its full weight on the defenders, which included Dahlgren guns from the Navy. While the Confederates were armed well, they would not be a match for the enemy. Siege operations are going to be very similar in terms of experience to Vicksburg. I hope to cover this more next episode, so keep that in mind for next week. But here is a quote to end from a Connecticut soldier. Now came forty days and nights in the wilderness of death. Before we left that diminutive gully, fifty or sixty men of the regiment had stained it with their blood, and several of the trees, 
which filled it with shade, had been cut asunder by cannon shot, while others were dying under the scars of innumerable bullets. The nuisance of trench duty does not consist in the overwhelming amount of danger at any particular moment, but in the fact that danger is perpetually present. The spring is always bent. The nerves never have a chance to recuperate. The elasticity of courage is slowly worn out. Every morning I was awakened by the popping of rifles and the whistling of balls. Hardly a day passed that I did not hear the loud exclamations of the wounded or see corpses borne to the rear, and the gamut of my good night lullaby varied all the way from many rifles to 68 pounders. In one respect, our gully was detestable. Well covered in front, it was open at one end, and this end was exposed to the enemy. I often wished that I could turn the wretched hole around. From a distance of nearly half a mile, the rebel sharpshooters drew a beat on us with a precision which deserved the highest commendation of their officers, which would made us curse the day as they were born. One incident proves, I think, that they were able to hit an object farther off than they could distinguish its nature. A rubber blanket hung over the stump of a sapling five feet high, which stood in the center of our bivouac, was pierced by a bullet from this quarter. A minute later, a second bullet passed directly over the object and lodged in a tree behind. I ordered the blanket to be taken down, and then the firing ceased. Evidently, the invisible marksman, 800 yards away, had mistaken it for a Yankee. Several men were hit upon the same hillock, or immediately in the rear, and I for one never crossed it without wondering whether I would get to safety to the other side. Another fatal spot was an exposed corner in the narrow terrace, which our men had made in a bank, as a standing place whence to fire over the knoll. Don't go there, Captain, a soldier said to me when I first approached the place. That's Dead Man's Corner. Five men have been killed there already. With that, we get a good account of life during a siege, and we're going to call it a day after two unsuccessful assaults that turn into the sieges of Vicksburg and Port Hudson. We will talk about the nature of the siege operations next week, with the focus on Vicksburg, of course. There's going to be a little more political talk, and then we are actually, believe it or not, going to set up the Battle of Gettysburg. Personally, I cannot believe that we are there already. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Post in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week.